It is not enough for a prince to know what goes on in his own time, but that he should even be informed about the most remote times. I considered that a knowledge of the great events of the past, digested by a mature and active mind, could strengthen his reasoning in important deliberations, that the example of the illustrious men and singular deeds of antiquity might possibly furnish some very useful insights in war and in peace, and that by contemplating the idea of so many brilliant virtues, a naturally great and magnanimous soul would be all the more inspired to practice them. King Louis Fourteenth. This is the audiobook of Reflections on Memoirs for the Instructions of the Dauphine, as written by King Louis Fourteenth of France. Produced by the Wisdom Factory Literary Society, edited and commented by Jordan Villanueva. Introduction For the prospective statesman or politician, it is of no small consequence that adequate time be given to the examination of leaders who have achieved great success in the realm of statecraft. The people of the world deserve great leaders, as too often they suffer under the rule of a tyrant or must settle for mediocrity. The proper exercise of power has been the subject of countless political disputations over the ages because mankind understands that a correct execution of the affairs of state is the surest way to peace, security, happiness, and opportunity for all. It is for this reason that we resurrect the lessons in statecraft offered by Louis Fourteenth. These reflections have been designed to analyze the king's governing principles and to demonstrate how his political philosophy led to effective policy. In order to appreciate the full magnitude of his contributions to France and to posterity, some context is necessary. He is the pride of France, affectionately known as the Sun King. Louis XIV was the reigning monarch of France from 1643 to 1715. He succeeded in centralizing all powers of the state into the hands of the monarch at the expense of the nobility. In the age of absolutism, he was the archetype, believing that kings were appointed from heaven and that only they could bring happiness and stability to the state. He was fascinated by the art of good government and through his wisdom, energy, and determination made France the envy of all Europe. He aspired to be magnificent in all of his undertakings. One look at the Palace of Versailles will allow one to appreciate his talent for meticulous planning. Once completed, Versailles was thought to be a reflection of heaven, a true testament to his vision of beauty and order. One look at the battle roster of his last two wars will allow one to comprehend his resolve. He led France alone against almost the whole of Europe in the Grand Alliance, which included Great Britain, Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, the Netherlands, Sweden, Prussia, and more. Astonishingly enough, he was able to withstand the combined force of the Grand Alliance and accomplish many of his objectives at the signing of the peace treaties. He cared deeply for the people of France and worked diligently for the improvement of French society at all levels. One of his notable contributions to this effort was the Code of Louis, a law code that unified France's fragmented legal system into one universal code of civil procedure. This accomplishment is more striking when considering that it was the basis for which Napoleon constructed his code, which itself is the father of many legal systems around the world today. 
Through economic planning, he was able to end France's dependence on many imports by investing in the manufacture of such a class of products. Through his innovations in the tax system, he was able to devise a more efficient system of public finance and through tough spending cuts, allowed France to enjoy unrivaled prosperity. He was an avid patron of the artists and scholars of his day and owns two impressive distinctions in both fields. As for the arts, he created modern ballet by setting up the first ballet operas. In the other, he established one of the first known scientific academies, the French Academy of Sciences led the way in scientific research and discovery for more than a century after its creation. King Louis XIV was the most powerful king France had ever known. But what made this monarch so unique was his aversion to the corruption of morals which usually accompany powerful leaders and make them insufferable. His commitment to a high standard of behavior, even when dealing with enemies, forms a striking contrast with the conventions propounded by his contemporary Machiavelli. Although he was not without his failures, when taken into account the sum of his legacy, one cannot deny the glory and prestige that he brought to the French people and their nation. Always mindful in matters that would preserve his kingdom, he made it a priority to pass on to his son all of the lessons of good government that he learned while on the throne. This commentary is based on ten selections from his memoirs and are categorized under the headings of foreign policy, nation-building, and leadership. In order to maximize the utility of this practice, one should try to relate main points to contemporary politics, affairs, and leaders. Where additional context is necessary, it has been provided. Foreign Policy, page 73. The Court of Spain did not share these sentiments. Footnote. King Louis XIV was seeking a redress for an incident that involved his ambassador and the Spanish ambassador in London. During a parade, the two were disputing about who should be in front of the other in a procession. The Spanish ambassador apparently paid off an armed mob to storm the coach of the French ambassadors, killing his horses so that he would not be able to claim the spot at issue. The court of Spain did not share these sentiments, but trusted to the art of negotiation in which this nation considers itself unsurpassed. Don Luis de Hero, who was nearing the end of his life, feeling the weakness of the state as well as his own, feared nothing so much as this break. He sought merely to gain more time in this affair by long and repeated conferences with my ambassador, imagining that everything would become easier once the initial excitement had been allowed to pass. He was very much surprised to see that things had changed between France and Spain, for at the Treaty of the Pyrenees, it was Cardinal Mazarin who tried to convince him by reasoning, to which he always replied briefly that he neither could nor dared exceed the orders of his king and the Council of Spain. Here, on the contrary, it was he who did the reasoning, and my ambassador who held firmly to my precise orders, continually obliging him to make unpleasant concessions. He died about them. I played on the circumstance. I acted with new ministers who were still uncertain as to their conduct as if all the conditions that had merely been proposed to him had already been decided so as to have the means of demanding still others of them. Each of my couriers carried stricter and more pressing orders, and the Council of Spain, seeing that every moment of delay made its situation worse, hastened by itself to settle on my conditions. Escalation Tactics as a Negotiation Tool 
As a declining power, Spain was in no position to follow up its recent action with threats or further insolence. They simply sought to do some damage control, and they believed that in bringing France to the negotiation table, they could arrive at a peaceable settlement. But King Louis XIV would see this event as an opportunity to gain some concessions from Spain, and without them, he would be forced to significantly cut ties with the country. He was playing a heavy hand, and the Spanish ambassador, seeking to avoid further deterioration with France while also refusing to acquiesce to their demands, settled on a strategy that is often used by weaker powers in moments of conflict with stronger ones. That is to seek negotiations only for the sake of drawing them out so that they can have time to reinforce their position. For our purposes, we should be aware of the types of negotiations that seem to have honorable ends, but never seem to be making any progress towards these ends. But if the opponent has taken this path of suspending affairs through negotiations, then what are we to do? As the Spanish were chiefly after time, King Louis XIV turned the passage of time from being to their advantage into being to their disadvantage. He did this through what can be called an escalation tactic and it worked wonders for his outcome. With each successive negotiation, his terms became more and more severe, and Spain was left with no alternative but to settle on the terms given, or else face steeper concessions or risk war with France. King Louis XIV performed a masterstroke of diplomacy in this instance, but his prudence in his reaction to the event that triggered the conflict should also be commended. When it comes to national honor, what nation on earth would not rush in extremes to order in order to either bring equal dishonor to their aggressor or retaliate outright? Emotions must have been high when he received the news of his ambassador's embarrassment, and his passion for revenge was undoubtedly fierce. But he was able to view the situation in terms not of gratifying his passions, but of gaining a sizable profit from such a blunder on Spain's behalf. We must always act with our judgment unimpeded by our initial emotional response to matters such as these, so as to avoid taking any course of action that resembles recklessness. Page 168-170 to Meanwhile, the commotion caused to the north by the apparent decision of the Swedes to arm against Denmark had inspired the states of Holland, the King of Prussia, and the Duke of Lunenburg to form a private league amongst themselves in order to prevent any new undertakings in Germany. The moment I heard of it, I had no doubt that although this connection was made with another idea, it might inconvenience me if it lasted too long, for I knew how closely the states of Holland and most of their princes were watching my actions, and how frightened they were of my becoming the master of Flanders. But I did not believe I should, on the basis of uncertain speculations about the future, strive to ruin a league that was most useful to me at present. Since the Swedes, threatened by so many other powers, were obviously obliged to cultivate my friendship more carefully. Thus, I merely did what I could to alleviate the suspicions of these princes regarding my plan by appearing to concentrate entirely on the affairs of England, and to remove their fear of the rise of my power by constantly giving them new tokens of my affection, without excluding, however, the possibility of disrupting this league once it had served my purposes, or at least when it could cause me some notable prejudice. For indeed, the able prince must regulate his demands and actions according to the difference in circumstances. There are moments when requiring only our valor in order to succeed, 
We do not need any other means. But there are others, when prudence being the only way to achieve our goal, it seems as if we should suspend the use of all of our other virtues for its sake. There are instances when we are obliged to make a brilliant exhibition of all our powers, in order to terrorize our enemies. But there are others, on the contrary, when we must display moderation and restraint, in order not to arouse the envy of our friends. The wisdom lies in choosing the proper policy at the proper time, and nothing renders the fortunes of a prince more stable and less changing, perhaps, than his ability to change his tone, his expression, his bearing, and his direction when necessary. A full understanding of this maxim can teach you to distinguish, by the behavior of each prince, those who are naturally able from those who merely have good fortune to appear so, although they actually are not. For you have no doubt that many of them have acquired their reputation for ability in the world solely from the advantage of being born in times when the general state of public affairs corresponds to their disposition, so that what they did naturally was what prudence would have dictated. And these men might have appeared extremely stupid if there had been the slightest change in their affairs or if they had been born at a time that required behavior contrary to their natural inclinations. For indeed, it is no easy thing to adapt constantly to the situation, since most men are accustomed to act emotionally rather than rationally, and since they are most often guided by their disposition and by their passions, their disposition, which remains the same, almost always maintains them on the same course. Whatever disorder they may see in their affairs, whatever misfortunes may befall them, they don't have enough good sense to seek its cause in their conduct. They attribute the entire thing solely to the caprice of fortune, and do not consider that if, on filling the first blows, they would have devised a new way of dealing with it, they would have assuredly have guarded against the worst cruelty. For it is certain that one of the best remedies against these changes is to change with them. And you must not think, my son, that the firmness which I have mentioned to you before is opposed to the maxim that I have established here. The virtue does not lie in doing the same thing, but in always aiming at the same end. And although this end, which is none other than our glory and the greatness of our state, may actually always be the same, the means to attain it, however, are not. Those who are useful at one time may often be harmful at another, the world in which we live is subject to so many changes that we cannot possibly continue the same policy for long. The able monarch, just like the wise pilot, can sail with every wind. And experience has repeatedly shown two entirely opposite ways of acting perfectly reconciled by the difference in the times and both of them eventually producing the same happy effect. Adapting Policy to Circumstances when a great power distributes their military assets, other nations will always make it a priority to understand the developments for the purposes of gaining insight into their true intentions. If one can become aware of how appearances convey certain messages, they can adjust their maneuvers to give a false reading of their intentions. It was the object of King Louis XIV's desire to strike at Flanders in order to increase his borders. A strict build-up along this frontier would have given this new alliance of German states in Holland a reason to prepare against a French invasion, thereby increasing the cost of money and men that would be necessary for the undertaking. The king made it a priority to soothe the suspicions of this alliance by not showing any readiness to counter them. 
Over time, this alliance broke apart on their own and as their interests split, and King Louis XIV claimed his prize. The king made it one of his principles to adapt his policy to the circumstances. It should never be assumed that one particular course of action will always work with every situation. When one finds themselves in a position of power, they will have several tools of statecraft at their disposal that can be used to accomplish their objectives. These are usually making war, starting trade wars, levying sanctions, using diplomatic options, carrying out covert operations, issuing decrees or doctrines, committing to isolation, appeasement, acting unilaterally, or in concert with other nations, referring to arbitration, referring to the international system, and etc. If we are to choose the proper policy at the proper time, all of these options are to be considered at different points in the life of the circumstance. Another point is made in this selection that has to do with observing the type of leadership of your adversary. King Louis XIV seems to believe that leaders who are stubborn in policy choices become vulnerable to changing circumstances. For example, while the, prince, while the price of oil remains high, a leader might enjoy success in a majority of his undertakings. But if the price of oil were to collapse, then depending on the leader's ability to be flexible in their policy, we may either see the regime begin to disintegrate or handle the situation with grace and dexterity. If we can figure out whether a leader of another state is either stubborn or flexible in this regard, then it will be to our great advantage. If the leader is indeed stubborn and seems to always pursue the same course of action, then we should form our policy on changing the circumstances affecting that state so as to force that leader to be out of balance with their normal course of action. This may serve to cause that leader to make bad policy decisions. Page 195 to 196. Sweden had however, excused her failure to execute their treaty by maintaining that it had engaged to aid them against Denmark only if she had no other problems elsewhere, and that this obligation did not hold then because she was about to be attacked by the Muscovites any day, and could not sacrifice her own defense to that of her neighbors. But the excuse about the Muscovites seems so obviously contrived that even though the English had no other alternative but to accept it, they still harbored a deep vexation for having been left in the lurch. This example shows two things, my son. One, that giving their word will not restrain those who are naturally in bad faith. And the other, that in executing our plans, we can only take full confidence in our own strength. Even though the honest prince will always keep his word, he would not be prudent to rely entirely upon that of the others. And although he may not feel capable of misleading anyone, it does not follow that he is incapable of being misled. Once one has resolved to go back on his word, it is easy to find the pretext. No clause is so precise that it is not subject to interpretation. Each one speaks entreaties according to his present interest, but most try to explain their words later according to whatever new circumstances arise. And when the reason for making a promise no longer holds, there are few persons who will hold on to their promises, but it may be added for your special instruction that this type of conduct is more typical of states that are directed by many heads than those that are governed by a single person. Beware of the broken treaty. A treaty can neither save a state or be the cause of its destruction. Such tremendous value 
does these documents possess in regulating the status of affairs in the international arena. King Louis XIV recognized early in his reign that treaties are hardly ever completely observed, and oftentimes this would have disastrous consequences for the misled party. It is true that in our world today, notwithstanding minor infractions here and there, that most treaties are observed in good faith. But this is always liable to change at any moment. As King Louis XIV says, it is easy for states to find a pretext for quitting their obligations in an agreement. Thus, we should be wary of treaties that leave us vulnerable from a security standpoint. It would be ideal to always have a contingency plan for these types of treaties. This can be done by formulating a plan of action in preparation for the event that a security treaty has been breached. This brings up the question on whether we ourselves are to engage in treaty breaking if the potential to gain some tremendous advantage might be at hand. King Louis XIV was one to observe strict compliance with his agreements with other states and this was a source of great pride for him. When a leader gives his word, he should follow it. This is a matter of principle, yes, but there is some utility in it. On the world stage, oftentimes, the only way to solve an issue is with a treaty. But how can two states come together in an agreement if there is no good faith? They often don't, and usually one cites the lack of trust as a great inhibitor to engaging in negotiations with the other. Therefore, reputation is key to diplomacy and world peace. If a leader has observed his obligations in every agreement, then his credibility becomes established. Then others are likely to want to deal with them as the risk on double dealing becomes minimal. On the other hand, if a leader is constantly breaking all of his engagements, then the other side can easily point to this history as a reason for remaining obstinate. Page 182. They say that kings are long-handed but it is also important for them to be far-sighted, and for them to foresee events long before they happen. For whatever, for whether or not we want certain things to happen, it is always useful to anticipate them. What comes from us is much more complete when we have had time to reflect upon it, and what comes from our enemies is much weaker when we are prepared for it. All our setbacks, whether in attack or in defense, are almost always attributable to lack of foresight or to insufficient reflection. Mediocre minds must be excused for not thinking about the future, because they have more than enough cares to occupy them for the present. But greater and loftier intellects, who can easily administer their ordinary affairs, must use the rest of their time to look constantly beyond them, because the farther ahead they can see into things, the longer they have to think about how to react to them, and are never reduced to the unfortunate necessity of making hasty decisions. Thinking long term. In the information era, not a soul has the excuse to be engaged in weighty affairs of state and not be completely informed about all of the relevant developments happening in the world. It is in the nature of this profession that individuals acquire as much intelligence as possible. This intelligence becomes crucial to ensuring the security of the state, as with it one can uncover the designs of an adversary and prevent them from being executed. But what is to be done when the information is incomplete or altogether missing, when the insight you have on an adversary is limited and there is a great deal of the unknown? It is in this circumstance that great leaders are separated from the others. King Louis XIV was of the idea that if a proper reflection is not done, then one will be caught off guard or a golden opportunity will be missed.
If we had the foresight to realize the menace of Soviet Russia was to become under Stalin after World War II, might we have followed Patton and Churchill's advice to push the Russians out of Eastern Europe? If we had a leader who could foresee the consequences of allowing North Korea to continue its nuclear ambitions, might we have taken stronger measures to end that regime? The amount of suffering and lives lost due to our inaction and lack of foresight compels us to seize opportunities to exercise this lesson and think long term. As a general rule, most magistrates tasked with long-term planning try to predict out into the future by intervals of 5, 10, 15, 25, and 50 years. Nation Building, page 66 to 68. But my last decision of that year concerning the finances was the establishment of the Chamber of Justice, in which I had two principal motives. The first, that it was not possible in the state to which things were reduced to diminish the ordinary taxes sufficiently and to relieve the poverty of the people promptly enough without making those who had grown wealthy at the expense of the state contribute heavily to its expenses. And the second, that for this chamber to examine the contracts that had been made was the only means to facilitate the settling of my debts, for they had been raised to such prodigious sums that I could not have paid them all without ruining most of my subjects, nor cancel them arbitrarily without running the risk of committing an injustice. Aside from not wanting to return to the abuse that had been practiced in the redemption of treasury notes, by which means influential people were paid sooner or later by sums that were not due them, while the real creditors would have drawn only a small portion of their due, this is why I believed that I should liquidate exactly what I owed, and what was owed to me in order to pay the one and to be paid by the other. But because these discussions were delicate, and because most of those concerned had a great deal of influence, and a good many relatives in the ordinary courts of justice, I was obliged to form a special one out of the most disinterested men and all the others. I have no doubt that from reading all of these details, you will get the impression that the effort required for all these sorts of things was not very pleasant in itself, and that this great number of ordinances, contracts, declarations, registers, and accounts that it was necessary not merely to see and to sign, but to conceive and resolve, was not too satisfying a matter to a mind capable of other things. And I will grant you this, but if you consider the great advantages that I have drawn from it later, the relief that I have granted to my subjects each year, of how many debts I have disengaged the state, how many alienated taxes I have repurchased, with what punctuality I have paid all legitimate burdens, and the number of poor workers I have supported by employing them on my buildings, how many gratuities I have given to people of merit, how I have furthered public works, what aid in men and money I have furnished my allies, how greatly I have increased the number of my ships, what strongholds I have purchased, with what vigor I have taken possession of my rights when they were challenged, without ever having been reduced to the unfortunate necessity burdening my subjects with any extraordinary tax. You would certainly find, then, that the labors by which I have reached this position 
must have appeared very pleasant to me, since they have borne so much fruit for my subjects. For indeed, my son, we must consider the good of our subjects far more than our own. They are almost a part of ourselves. Since we are ahead of a body, and they are its members, it is only for their advantage that we must give them laws, and our power and our power over them must only be used by us in order to work more effectively for their happiness. It is wonderful to deserve from them the name of father along with that of master, and if the one belongs to us by right of birth, the other must be the sweetest object of our ambition. I am well aware that such a title was not obtained without a great deal of effort, but in praiseworthy undertakings one must not be stopped by the idea of difficulty. Work only dismays weak souls, and when a plan is advantageous and just, it is weakness not to execute it. Laziness in those of our rank is just as opposed to greatness, of courage as timidity, and there is no doubt that a monarch responsible for watching over the public interest deserves more blame in fleeing from a useful burden than in stopping in the face of imminent danger, for indeed, the fear of danger can always be tinged by a feeling of prudence, whereas the fear of work can never be considered as anything but an inexcusable weakness. Prosperity attained by energy and effort. When a state is in a favorable financial position, meaning that they have either a small national debt or a surplus savings, they can reinvest that money into areas that would truly deliver opportunity and happiness for the citizens of that state. Such a state could invest heavily in places such as health, education, employment, research and development, space exploration, infrastructure, poverty elimination, crime reduction, and other areas that would make life for everyone more rewarding, interesting, peaceful, and fun. For this reason, a leader who brings a state out of its wretched financial condition into the heights of prosperity should be all the more loved and admired. This was Louis XIV's objective. And before he got entangled in his final wars, he paid off France's debts and had the state treasuries overflowing. He accomplished this by being absolutely involved in every detail about every transaction where the state's financial situation was concerned. One of the first things he noticed was that the majority of his nation's wealth had accumulated into the hands of a handful of aristocrats. He felt that the well-being of the state as a whole depended on the increased contributions of those who could easily afford them, and that it was their duty to give back to the state which had been instrumental in helping them acquire their wealth. When examining the financial condition of a state to look for potential revenue streams, one is bound to run into very powerful interest groups that are against and will impede any design that seeks to increase their burdens to the state. Yet even though most individuals will tend to their immediate interests, over that of the good of the state, there will also always be individuals who understand the higher ideals of sacrifice and of duty to the greatness and health of their country. These are the people in which King Louis XIV speaks of when he formed his special court of justice to legalize many of his financial reforms. Such honorable individuals will be instrumental to any modern attempt to overhaul our financial systems and no effort should be spared to find and organize them. It was not enough for King Louis XIV to recognize that his country was in need of financial reform. He had to embark on a long, tedious process of writing contracts, going over ordinances, and all of that other work which he mentions. The point that he stressed in the larger part of the selection was that this work 
although uneventful, repetitive, and time-consuming, benefited the state and the people immensely. When a leader is in a position of power, their attitude toward work can have a significant impact on their effectiveness. If they can find the determination and energy to accomplish multiple tasks at a good pace, then they can start more initiatives, handle more situations, and complete more objectives. Contrast this wealth of productivity with a leader who has similar powers but has not the work ethic to see through his commitments. It becomes easy to see why the king was so harsh in his words so as to say that any leader of the sort suffered from inexcusable weakness. Page 83 to 84. There arose soon after an occasion unpleasant in itself, yet useful in its outcome, that gave my people a clear indication of how capable I was of this same attention to details in regards to their own interest and to their advantages. The great dearth of 1661 did not actually begin to make itself felt until the beginning of 1662, when most of the wheat of the previous ones had been consumed. But then it afflicted the entire kingdom in the midst of these first successes, as if God, who was careful to temper his blessings, had wanted to balance the great and joyful hopes for the future with a present misfortune. Footnote. The first successes that King Louis XIV refers to is his work to stabilize the country's finances. So, just as King Louis was able to stabilize the finances, this um, great famine started to occur. The great dearth of 1661 did not actually begin to make itself felt until the beginning of 1662, when most of the wheat of the previous ones had been consumed. But then it afflicted the entire kingdom in the midst of these first successes, as if God, who was careful to temper his blessings, had wanted to balance the great and joyful hopes for the future with a present misfortune. Those who in such a case are accustomed to profit from a public calamity did not fail to close their stores, expecting higher prices and greater profits. One may imagine, however, my son, what effect markets empty of all sorts of grains Peasants compelled to abandon the cultivation of the soil in order to go elsewhere in desperate search for their sustenance produced in the kingdom, even causing apprehension that the misfortune of that year would continue into the following ones. Artisans who raise the prices of their products in proportion to the cost of living, the poor making their complaints and their murmurs heard everywhere, middling families who held back their usual charities from fear of an impending need, the most wealthy burdened with their servants and unable to do everything, all the orders in the state finally threatened with the grave disease, diseases that accompany a poor diet, and which, beginning with the people, subsequently spread to the persons of the highest quality. All this caused indescribable dismay throughout France. It would have been infinitely greater, my son, if I had merely agonized over it or if I had relied on the remedies at hand. But on the ordinary magistrates who are all too often weak and incompetent, lacking in zeal, or even corrupt. I began, I began to intimately acquaint myself with the needs of the people and with the conditions. I obliged the more affluent provinces to aid the others, private individuals to open their stores and to put up their commodities at fair price. I hastily sent orders everywhere to bring in as much wheat as I possibly could by sea, from Danzig and from other foreign countries. I had my treasury purchase it. I distributed it free to the lower classes of the biggest cities, such as Paris, Rouen, Tours, and others. I had the rest sold at a very modest price to those who could afford it, 
and any profit from this was immediately employed for the relief of the poor, who derived by this means voluntary, natural, and imperceptible aid from the wealthy. In the countryside, where distribution of wheat could not be effected so promptly, I dispatched money with which each one subsequently tried to relieve his need. I appeared finally to all my subjects as a true father of a family who provides for his household and equitably distributes nourishment to his children and to his servants. I have never found any expense more useful than this one, for our subjects, my son, are our true riches and the only ones that we conserve purely for themselves, all the others being good for nothing unless we know the art of using them, that is, of spending them wisely. And if God gives me the grace, the grace to execute everything I have in mind, I shall try to bring the prosperity of my reign to such a point, not in truth, that there should be no more rich or poor, for fortune, industry, and intelligence will always retain this distinction among men. But at least that there should be no more indigence or begging throughout the kingdom. I mean no one, however impoverished he may be, who has not assured his sustenance either through work or through normal and regulated aid. I was abundantly and immediately rewarded for my cares by the upsurge of affection that they produced for me in the hearts of the people. And this is how, my son, we may sometimes turn into blessings the greatest troubles of the state, for if anything can tighten the sacred knot that attaches subject to their sovereign and awaken in their hearts their natural sentiments of respect, of gratitude, and of love for him, it is undoubtedly the aid that they receive from him in time of some unexpected public misfortune. We hardly note the admirable order of the worlds and the regular and useful course of the sun until some disturbance in the seasons or some apparent disorder in the machine makes us give it a little more reflection. As long as everything in a state is prosperous, it is easy to forget the infinite blessings that royalty provides and merely envy those that it possesses. Man naturally, ambitious and proud, can never understand why another should command him until he feels the need for it. Understanding the Needs of the People When disease and famine threatened to throw France into a state of chaos, King Louis XIV remained as sharp as ever to meet the crisis. His effectiveness can be attributed to his understanding of the troubles that the lower classes were facing as a result of the calamity. In, particular, in, in one particular instance, he saw that whenever a disaster happened, those who possessed the resources in high demand realized that they can sell their goods at much higher rates than normal. This happens even today, and so a future leader with the power to mitigate this money-grubbing tendency should do so as quickly as possible in the event of a disaster. When forming his plans on how to best correct the situation, King Louis XIV noticed that his advisors were often inept or gave bad advice. Now, whether this was simply due to their inability to conceive of proper solutions or whether they were using the situation to serve their own interests and thus naturally arrived at solutions inadequate to the real problems, it is difficult to determine. But there is a lesson here. And that is that we cannot always rely on our inner circle to provide us with the best means of solving a problem. Their counsel should always be sought and given proper consideration, but no more than is necessary. A true leader in a state must be able to assess the situation himself and devise wise, imaginative, and bold solutions. A strong reason for this is that interest groups will always seek to penetrate the conversations had among a leader and their confidants with the hope of gaining influence on the former 
through those who have his or her ear. King Louis XIV displays his affections for his subjects in an almost poetic manner in this selection. One gets the sense that he truly loves them and genuinely seeks to provide for their needs. It is an obvious point that a statesman should always be mindful of the citizens they serve and wish them nothing but happiness. However, this is a sentiment that seems to be lacking among a good portion of our lawmakers. One should consider, as Louis XIV did, that the citizen plays an integral part in the function of a state. They supply the state with its productive capacity, the soldiers for war, the selection of its leaders, scientific innovations, entertainment, cultural phenomenon, and general peace, as this can only come when people live in harmony with one another. The positive condition of regular citizens and their health, finances, education, and opportunities forms the bedrock of a strong nation and contributes to order and further prosperity. Louis XIV did his best to confer these blessings upon his people, and it would be to the advantage of all our future leaders to follow his example in this regard. Page 224 to 225. For their part, my subjects were each day displaying more and more ardor and eagerness for my service. The long-standing neglect of the Navy had sometimes made me afraid of not finding enough sailors for all my ships. But at my slightest bidding, there were more than I needed. Entire provinces offering to abandon their homes and to leave their wives and children for my service. At the first rumor of war in Flanders, my court was suddenly flooded with gentlemen requesting positions. The captains of all old units sought my permission to recruit men at their own expense. Others requested only my simple commission for raising new troops and all, in their various positions, vied with each other in showing me their zeal. It is assuredly pleasant to receive such tokens of esteem and affection from one's subjects. All princes agree that this is the greatest treasure they can possess. All esteem it, all desire it, but none at all try hard enough to acquire it. For in order to attain it, my son, we must direct all our actions and all our thoughts toward this end. We must prefer it to all other possessions and flee, as the greatest evil in the world, all that separates us from it. It is for ordinary men to limit themselves only to what they can find useful and pleasant. But the first thought of kings, and all their counsels, must be for what may or may not win them the acclaim of the public. Kings who are born to possess everything and to command over everything must not be ashamed to accede to renown. It is a possession that is avidly to be desired that indeed can contribute more than any other to the success of our plans. A reputation can often do more by itself than the most powerful armies. All conquerors have gone further with their name than with their sword, and a thousand times their sole presence has easily brought down ramparts capable of resisting all their forces. But it is important to note that such a noble and precious possession is also the most fragile in the world that it is not enough to have acquired it without constantly seeing to its preservation, and that this esteem, which is formed only through a long succession of good actions, can be destroyed in a moment by a single error. And we don't even have to fail in order to be condemned. It's often enough if our fortunes decline, for our reputation to suffer, and just as all the luck of the fortunate man is turned by the people into his glory, so also all the failures of unfortunate of the unfortunate are attributed to their lack of prudence. Strengthening National Will Under the king's leadership, the people were well employed. 
and the nobles were making more money than ever before. Both were witnesses to the king's public engineering program that was to transform France into the beautiful tourist destination that we know it as today. Art, science, and culture were flourishing, and peace and order was the norm. France was in a golden age of progress, and no one questioned to whom deserved all the credit. King Louis XIV, who held absolute authority in his state, only used that power for one end, to achieve perpetual glory and happiness for France and his people. As a result, the king was showered by praises and songs dedicated to his achievements. He was loved by the people. He tells us in his memoirs that this affection was what he was after all along, that every decision he had made had been calculated to this end. For our purposes, we must certainly be aware of demagogues who promise everything to the people, gratifying their every whim and passion so that they can remain in power. But there does exist a happy medium where a leader can reasonably accommodate the people and tend to their needs, of which a great many are indeed valid and often go ignored. We see in this election the benefits Louis XIV Louis enjoyed by being in such a situation as to have the bond between leader and ruler solidified. Between the leader and the people solidified. This type of relationship, which unites the will of the people to that of the leadership, can unlock the unbounded potential of nations to achieve great things. Every aspiring statesman has a vision for his country. They feel that they can bring the affairs of state to such a happy position that they may indeed answer the call of the Constitution, that they may improve the lives of all citizens, or perhaps bring forth the advancement of mankind into the next great era. They might want to unite the divisions among people so that they can bring down the peace of heaven onto earth. Whatever it may be, with the full support of the people, whom are willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary for the leader to be successful, the prerogative of the leader gains the force of an entire nation. The roadblocks and obstacles once impeding his or her agenda, agenda are removed, and their efforts become reinforced not only by the full resources of the government, but that which the people own as well. Once a people pledge their loyalty and zeal for their leader, this sends an unmistakable message to the heads of state around the world. Leadership, page 111. The lower classes, either frightened by something that appeared new to them, or secretly aroused by the nobility, stirred seditiously against my orders. The protestations and the mildness of those who I, I had entrusted with their execution, being taken as timidity and as weakness, increased the tumult rather than pacified it. The rebels gathered in various places to the number of 6,000 men, their fury could not be tolerated any longer. I sent troops there to punish it. Most of them dispersed. I readily pardoned all those whose repentance was demonstrated by their retreat. Some, more obstinate in their errors, were taken under arms and turned over to justice. Their crime merited death. I arranged that most were condemned in, to the galleys, and I even would have exempted them from this punishment if I did not believe that on this occasion I had to follow my reason 
rather than my inclination. We should be too happy, my son, if we had only to oblige and to give out graces. But God himself, whose goodness has no limits, cannot always reward and is sometimes compelled to punish. However much it pains us to do harm, we must be consoled about it when we feel in ourselves that, like him, we are doing it solely with a just and legitimate idea of a good a thousand times greater. It is not spilling the blood of our subjects to exterminate murderers and evildoers. It is rather sparing it and preserving it. It is letting ourselves be struck by compassion for an infinite number of the innocent rather than for a small number of the guilty. Indulgence for these individual wretches would constitute universal and public cruelty. On the contrary, I shall try to make you realize the charm of clemency, the most royal of all the virtues, since it can only belong to kings, the only one by which we can be owed more than we can ever be repaid. I mean life and honor, the greatest thing, finally, for which we can be revered, since it is virtually one step above our power and our justice. But in so far as I can judge, from carefully observing the actions of your childhood as I do, you will be, and I praise God for it with all my heart, sympathetic, easily pacified, and will have to guard much less against anger, hatred, and vengeance than against the opposite faults. Only don't let them take advantage of your own love for glory by passing these faults off to you as virtues. Acclaim follows them initially, but scorn will be quick to follow when it is recognized that if they are not the source, they are at least the most dangerous of all vices in a prince. To deprive the laws of their rigor is depriving the world of order, of peace, and of tranquility. It is depriving ourselves of royalty. Punishment is absolutely necessary to keep order. It is perhaps the grimmest part of any prospective statesman's reality that some day they may find themselves in a position where the right thing to do is to condemn another human being to death or to prison. It is a duty that requires a hard heart, but as long as evil exists in the world, the forces of good must do all they can to destroy wickedness where it arises and takes its most aggressive forms. King Louis XIV had to squash the armed rebellion or else it might have spread into other parts of France and ruined the general peace. The enlightened leader must know when to resort to such measures, but even more crucial is their ability to perceive whether alternative solutions may be better. In order to decide upon the proper course of action, one should look at the legitimacy of the rebellious movement. In cases where the established government fails to execute the laws or defies them outright, the people have every reason to seek change. And depending upon the severity of the violations on the side of the government, the people may be justified in resorting to arms. Let us not forget the noble cause of the American Revolution, as the right to fight against tyranny is always reserved to those whom suffer under arbitrary and corrupt laws. Yet this is by no means a license for those who have minor disagreements with a particular policy of their government to resort to violence or treason with impunity. As a general rule, caution should be taken with those movements that come into being as a result of a lack of basic life necessities, such as food, water, or shelter. Similar discretion should be applied to civil rights movements. 
But when the unjustified riot occurs, or the looters on the fringe of these movements come out to steal, punishment must be severe. There may be times, as well, when foreign influence has created some pretense for rebellion, and these must be rooted out with force as well. Mass movements are usually organized and have people in top positions who are authorized to take action on behalf of the interest of the movement. These individuals should be brought to the negotiation table, or at least consulted with at length. This will give ample time for a settlement to be reached, or at the very least, for some new understanding to be had amongst the parties involved. As for the idea of clemency, King Louis XIV sees it as a way to parade his mercy. This seems to be outdated in modern times, as a leader should never have to demonstrate it in that way. Clemency should be reserved for peaceful protesters who strive for change in the correct way. These individuals don't hurt anybody or commit crimes other than a few misdemeanors during the protest. They are often otherwise outstanding citizens who can be well educated and who often earn an honest living. If one is to give clemency, it is to these people that it should be conferred. Page 151. But this was not enough, for aside from the troops that I had brought in there, there were a great many others that I could not view so quickly, either because they were needed for guarding strongholds or because they were so far away that I could only have brought them in at a great expense, and yet I was well aware that it would be difficult to restore them to their proper conditions without constant surveillance. As of this writing, King Louis refers to a review that he was doing of the army at campaign. I could not view so quickly, either because they were needed for guarding strongholds, or because they were so far away that I could only have brought them in at a great expense, and yet I was well aware that it would be difficult to restore them to their proper conditions without constant surveillance. I knew how easily captains and commanders, who believe themselves out of my sight, could relent on their duties, and how their own interests could lead them to conspire against my service. This is why I sent special agents everywhere, with orders to catch the troops by surprise initially in order to check innocently on their condition, warning the commanders to put things in better order promptly, and making it clear that they would return as often as they deemed it necessary, a most useful practice. For the captains, seeing that they were closely observed, were obliged to maintain their companies constantly at full strength, and the commissioners could no longer exaggerate the number of troops they were reviewing, having no doubt that the discrepancies would immediately be discovered. For my investigators gave me an exact oral and written report on their return, so that I could see at leisure to those things that required my authority. I also went to the trouble of distributing even the most minor offices in the infantry, as well as in the cavalry, myself, something that my predecessors had never done, having always relied on the superior officers for this, so that this function had become associated with their dignity. Finally, I assigned quarters to the troops. I settled differences between units and between mere officers, and believed that I had to make sure of everything myself. So must you be entirely convinced that our dedication to the public welfare or to the good of our service is the only means of satisfactorily achieving them. And as for me, I cannot understand how princes who neglect their own affairs can imagine that those to whom they entrust them should take better care of them than they. It is useful for subjects to imitate their monarchs in every way they can.
but they are never quicker to follow his example than in his neglect of his own interests. When private individuals discover that the prince lacks dedication, that whatever good or evil that they do may go equally unnoticed, that in either case they will be equally treated, and that he who has so many people working for him at once will not go through a moment's trouble to see how he is being served, they gradually develop a cowardly indifference that makes their courage fail, their vigor slacken, their minds soften, and even their body grow heavy. They quickly lose their love of duty, their esteem for their master, their shame at public criticism, their love of glory, and even their idea of virtue, so that they perform their functions in a matter that is convenient to them, which is usually the worst, for perfection is hardly ever achieved without some difficulty. But when, on the contrary, a prince is always seeking what is best for his service, when it is realized that nothing escapes his attention, that he discerns everything, that he weighs everything, and that sooner or later he punishes and rewards everything, this cannot help but make him both better obeyed and more highly esteemed. His dedication seems to descend from rank to rank down to the lowliest officer of his troops. Each one who is at fault fears, each one who has served well hopes, and all constantly strive to do their duty as the only means of making their fortune. For we cannot expect, however able we may be, to correct the natural inclination of all men to seek their own interest. But it would still be sufficiently glorious for us to arrange so that they can only find it in honest practices, in meritorious actions, and in observing the rules of their profession. Discipline and Dedication and the Ranks In the king's experience, a ruler he noticed, in the king's experience as ruler, he noticed that the performance of his officers and cabinet members depended on his ability to hold them accountable when they failed. He had to make plain to all of his subordinates that if they neglected their duties, then they would either be punished or embarrassed. In order to maintain this sort of discipline, it is best that the leader review his men and women in person. These days we have smartphones or other ways to show our displeasure with others directly. The reason for the personal touch is that the stronger the authority of the one in charge of disciplining, the more likely the others will be to obey. The average high school student may or may not listen to their teacher when being reprimanded, but that same student may begin to shake in their shoes when they hear that they are being sent to the principal. The difference in authority between the teacher and the principal may be the difference in correcting the behavior of the individual in question. A leader must know how to use their authority to get others to perform at their highest. Another way to do this is through rewards. Everyone who works hard at something wants to be recognized, and so top performers should not just be rewarded privately, but their excellence should be made known to as many as possible. If we distinguish an individual for their superior merit and make it known to those around them, then A, the top performing individual will work harder to maintain that reputation, and B, others will seek to follow his or her example. Thus, through discipline and rewards, our subordinates will know that we are watching them closely, waiting for them to fail, but hoping for the opportunity to honor them. King Louis XIV firmly believed in the principle of leading by example. He put his heart and soul into his work, and so expected others to do likewise, in the same way that the courage of a man leading the charge in a battlefield 
becomes replicated by those behind him, so too does our qualities become replicated in the pursuit of the ultimate goal. King Louis XIV says that all of the qualities that adds to a king's success, that of dedication, ranks foremost among them. We should seize every opportunity to show our dedication to the vision we hold dear and let no amount of work get in the way of our resolve to see them realized. If we lead the charge with maximum effort, we can be reassured that others will follow. King Louis XIV was a reformer. He came to the throne and redesigned the entire system of monarchy. He found that the old system had survived its purpose and that new innovations were necessary to give the monarchy the vitality it needed to accomplish its aims. A statesman should always be thinking of how to make their office more efficient and effective. They should improve upon their predecessors in this regard. To use the king's example in this selection, a statesman can always enlarge their responsibilities either by assuming powers that were once delegated to lower offices or finding new ways to exercise existing power. The former is by far the easiest to accomplish, while the latter requires tremendous ingenuity. Page 219. Whatever qualities men may possess, they can hardly be held responsible for their initial reactions in the face of something new. The bravest may be startled by the unknown, whereas the most timid can become accustomed to remaining quite calm before the most terrifying sights. Habit is the best way to make things easy for ourselves. The most crushing labors become almost negligible to those who have long been engaged in them, and the most frightening perils have such little impact on those who are accustomed to them that they will often stand up without hesitation. The Importance of Experience, Exposure, and Preparation King Louis XIV is a witness to the general truth that mankind is a creature of habit. We are fearful of change as well as the unknown, but time after time we have overcome these obstacles through gradual exposure to new situations. For a leader sometimes it is necessary to push the boundaries of the normal. When John F. Kennedy called upon the nation to go to the moon, many could not take him seriously. Some thought man could not survive out there, others that the resources of the state would be better used elsewhere. Yet within the decade, as he promised, American boots trampled on the surface of the moon. We cannot expect others to understand that which is entirely new to them. There will always be opposition to bold ideas and action. As a leader, we must gradually expose others to new realities and new situations. In our world today, things are evolving at an ever faster rate. Leaders must remain on the cutting edge of all the new developments in science, diplomacy, and war. In the realm of science, there may be new technologies that frighten mankind initially. Whether it's stem cells, robotics, AI, or cloning, one can see how further advances in these areas might unsettle populations or even governments. Of course, scientific advancement needs to be tempered with morality, but it is also just as important for the progress of humanity that these new technologies be allowed to develop. The capable leader must find a way to prepare others for these new realities. In diplomacy, a leader might face a situation where a long-time enemy wishes to settle old differences and seek friendship. This, hap this has happened enough in history that we shouldn't be surprised, at, and yet we still feel uneasiness when it happens. If the interest of both countries has arrived at such a point where the best thing for both to do is to begin to work together, 
and this is to be encouraged regardless of past differences. As the relationship with an old enemy evolves, so should popular opinion. It is the leader's job to facilitate this process. In warfare, new tactics, strategies, and weapons are constantly being devised. The war of today may be entirely different from that of five years ago. A leader cannot become complacent because his nation's army has mastered warfare in its present stage. Soldiers must constantly be trained with the latest equipment. Officers must adapt to the increased capability of the enemy, and governments must mobilize their military to areas that pose new threats. As warfare is constantly evolving, the leader must do all they can to make sure their country leads all others in these new developments. If we can expose ourselves to new realities, and we can prepare others for their eventuality, then comes experience and mastery. If we follow this lesson, along with the others that King Louis XIV has set out for us, then we should be on our way to becoming great leaders.